Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing recently published articles. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine first-line cell percutinib or chemotherapy and pembrolizumab and retfusion-positive NSCLC. Background Cell percutinib, a highly selective potent and brain-penetrant RET inhibitor, was shown to have efficacy in patients with advanced retfusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer, NSCLC, in a non-randomized phase 1-2 study. Methods In a randomized phase 3 trial, we evaluated the efficacy and safety of first-line cell percutinib as compared with controlled treatment that consisted of platinum-based chemotherapy with or without pembrolizumab at the investigator's discretion. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival assessed by blinded independent central review in both the intention to treat pembrolizumab population, i.e., patients whose physicians had planned to treat them with pembrolizumab in the event that they were assigned to the control group, and the overall intention to treat population. Crossover from the control group to the cell percutinib group was allowed if disease progression as assessed by blinded independent central review occurred during receipt of controlled treatment. Results In total, 212 patients underwent randomization in the intention to treat pembrolizumab population. At the time of the preplanned interim efficacy analysis, median progression-free survival was 24.8 months. 95% confidence interval, C, 16.9 to not estimable, with cell percutinib and 11.2 months, 95% C, 8.8 to 16.8, with controlled treatment, hazard ratio for progression or death, 0.46, 95% C, 0.31 to 0.70, P less than 0.001. The percentage of patients with an objective response was 84%, 95% C, 76 to 90 with cell percutinib and 65%, 95% C, 54 to 75 with controlled treatment. The cause specific hazard ratio for the time to progression affecting the central nervous system was 0.28, 95% C, 0.12 to 0.68. Efficacy results in the overall intention to treat population, 261 patients, were similar to those in the intention to treat pembrolizumab population. The adverse events that occurred with cell percutinib and control treatment were consistent with those previously reported. Conclusions Treatment with cell percutinib led to significantly longer progression-free survival than platinum-based chemotherapy with or without pembrolizumab among patients with advanced retfusion-positive NSCLC. Phase 3 Trial of Cell Percutinib in Advanced Ret Mutant Metallary Thyroid Cancer Background 
Selpercatimib, a highly selective, potent RET inhibitor, has shown efficacy in advanced RET mutant medullary thyroid cancer in a phase 1-2 trial, but its efficacy as compared with approved multi-keyness inhibitors is unclear. Methods We conducted a phase 3, randomized trial comparing selpercatimib as first-line therapy with a physician's choice of cabozantinib or vandetinib, control group. Eligible patients had progressive disease documented within 14 months before enrollment. The primary endpoint in the protocol specified interim efficacy analysis was progression-free survival, assessed by blinded independent central review. Crossover to cell percutinib was permitted among patients in the control group after disease progression. Treatment failure-free survival, assessed by blinded independent central review, was a secondary, alpha-controlled endpoint that was to be tested only if progression-free survival was significant. Among the other secondary endpoints were overall response and safety. Results A total of 291 patients underwent randomization. At a median follow-up of 12 months, median progression-free survival as assessed by blinded independent central review was not reached in the cell percutinib group and was 16.8 months, 95% confidence interval, C, 12.2 to 25.1, in the control group, hazard ratio for disease progression or death, 0.28, 95% C, 0.16 to 0.48, P less than 0.001. Progression-free survival at 12 months was 86.8%, 95% C, 79.8 to 91.6, in the cell percutinib group and 65.7%, 95% C, 51.9 to 76.4, in the control group. Median treatment failure-free survival as assessed by blinded independent central review was not reached in the cell percutinib group and was 13.9 months in the control group, hazard ratio for disease progression, discontinuation due to treatment-related adverse events, or death, 0.25, 95% C, 0.15 to 0.42, P less than 0.001. Treatment failure-free survival at 12 months was 86.2%, 95% C, 79.1 to 91.0, in the cell percutinib group and 62.1%, 95% C, 48.9 to 72.8, in the control group. The overall response was 69.4%, 95% C, 62.4 to 75.8, in the cell percutinib group and 38.8%, 95% C, 29.1 to 49.2 in the control group. Adverse events led to a dose reduction in 38.9% of the patients in the cell percutinib group, as compared with 77.3% in the control group, and a treatment discontinuation in 4.7% and 26.8%, respectively. Conclusions Cell percutinib treatment resulted in superior progression-free survival and treatment failure-free survival as compared with cabozantinib or vandetinib in patients with ret mutant medullary thyroid cancer. Two Phase three Trials of Gantnermob in Early Alzheimer's Disease Background Monoclonal antibodies that target amyloid beta, a beta, have the potential to slow cognitive and functional decline in persons with early Alzheimer's disease. Gantnerimab is a subcutaneously administered, fully human, 
anti-A-beta-1 monoclonal antibody with highest affinity for aggregated A-beta that has been tested for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. We conducted two phase 3 trials, graduate 1 and 2, involving participants 50 to 90 years of age with mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease and evidence of amyloid plaques on positron emission tomography, PET or cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, testing. Participants were randomly assigned to receive gantner-mob or placebo every two weeks. The primary outcome was the change from baseline in the score on the clinical dementia rating scale sum of boxes, CDRSB, range, 0 to 18, with higher scores indicating greater cognitive impairment, at week 116. Results A total of 985 and 980 participants were enrolled in the graduate 1 and 2 trials, respectively. The baseline CDRSB score was 3.7 in the graduate I trial and 3.6 in the graduate II trial. The change from baseline in the CDRSB score at week 116 was 3.35 with Gantnerumab and 3.65 with placebo in the graduate I trial, difference, minus 0.31, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 0.66 to 0.05, P equals 0.10 and was 2.82 with gantnerumab and 3.01 with placebo in the graduate 2 trial, difference, minus 0.19, 95% C, minus 0.55 to 0.17, P equals 0.30. At week 116, the difference in the amyloid level on PET between the gantnerumab group and the placebo group was minus 66.44 and minus 56.46 centiloids in the graduate 1 and 2 trials, respectively and amyloid negative status was attained in 28.0% and 26.8% of the participants receiving gantnerumab in the two trials. Across both trials, participants receiving gantnerumab had lower CSF levels of phosphorylated tau-181 and higher levels of it-beta-42 than those receiving placebo. The accumulation of aggregated tau on PET was similar in the two groups. Amyloid-related imaging abnormalities with edema, ARIA-E, occurred in 24.9% of the participants receiving gantnerumab, and symptomatic ARIA-E occurred in 5.0%. Conclusions Among persons with early Alzheimer's disease, the use of gantnerumab led to a lower amyloid plaque burden and placebo at 116 weeks but was not associated with slower clinical decline. Arginine or hypertonic saline stimulated copeptin to diagnose ADP deficiency. Background Distinguishing between arginine vasopressin, AVP deficiency, and primary polydipsia is challenging. Hypertonic saline stimulated copeptin has been used to diagnose AVP deficiency with high accuracy but requires close sodium monitoring. Arginine stimulated copeptin has shown similar diagnostic accuracy but with a simpler test protocol. However, data are lacking from a head-to-head comparison between arginine-stimulated copeptin and hypertonic saline-stimulated copeptin in the diagnosis of AVP deficiency. Methods In this international, non-inferiority trial, we assigned adult patients with polydipsia and hypotonic polyuria or a known diagnosis of AVP deficiency to undergo diagnostic evaluation with hypertonic saline stimulation on one day and with arginine stimulation on another day. 
two endocrinologists independently made the final diagnosis of AVP deficiency or primary polydipsia with use of clinical information, treatment response, and the hypertonic saline test results. The primary outcome was the overall diagnostic accuracy according to pre-specified copeptin cutoff values of 3.8 pol per liter after 60 minutes for arginine and 4.9 pol per liter once the sodium level was more than 149 millimoles per liter for hypertonic saline. Results Of the 158 patients who underwent the two tests, 69, 44%, received the diagnosis of AVP deficiency and 89, 56%, received the diagnosis of primary polydipsia. The diagnostic accuracy was 74.4%, 95% confidence interval, C, 67.0 to 80.6, for arginine-stimulated copeptin and 95.6%, 95% C, 91.1 to 97.8, for hypertonic saline-stimulated copeptin, estimated difference, minus 21.2 percentage points, 95% C, minus 28.7 to minus 14.3. Adverse events were generally mild with the two tests. A total of 72% of the patients preferred testing with arginine as compared with hypertonic saline. Arginine stimulated copeptin at a value of 3.0 pol per liter or less led to a diagnosis of AVP deficiency with a specificity of 90.9%, 95% C, 81.7 to 95.7, whereas levels of more than 5.2 mol per liter led to a diagnosis of primary polydipsia with a specificity of 91.4%, 95% C, 83.7 to 95.6. Conclusions Among adult patients with polyuria polydipsia syndrome, AVP deficiency was more accurately diagnosed with hypertonic saline-stimulated copeptin than with arginine-stimulated copeptin. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Effect of Dietary Sodium on Blood Pressure Crossover Trial Importance Dietary Sodium Recommendations are debated partly due to variable blood pressure, BP, response to sodium intake. Furthermore, the BP effect of dietary sodium among individuals taking antihypertensive medications is understudied. Objectives to examine the distribution of within individual BP response to dietary sodium, The difference in BP between individuals allocated to consume a high or low-sodium diet first, and whether these varied according to baseline BP and antihypertensive medication use. Design, setting, and participants' prospectively allocated diet order with crossover in community-based participants enrolled between April 2021 and February 2023 in two U.S. cities. A total of 213 individuals aged 50 to 75 years, including those with normotension, 25%, controlled hypertension, 20%, uncontrolled hypertension, 31%, and untreated hypertension, 25%, attended a baseline visit while consuming their usual diet, then completed one-week high and low-sodium diets. Intervention high sodium, approximately 2,200 mg sodium added daily to usual diet, and low sodium, approximately 500 mg daily total, diets. Main outcomes and measures average 24-hour ambulatory systolic and diastolic BP, mean arterial pressure, and pulse pressure. Results among the 213 participants who completed both high and low sodium diet visits, the median age was 61 years, 
65% were female and 64% were black. While consuming usual, high-sodium, and low-sodium diets, participants' median systolic BP measures were 125, 126, and 119 mm Hg, respectively. The median with an individual change in mean arterial pressure between high and low-sodium diets was 4 mm Hg, IQR, 0 to 8 mm Hg, P less than 0.001, which did not significantly differ by hypertension status. Compared with the high-sodium diet, the low-sodium diet induced a decline in mean arterial pressure in 73.4% of individuals. The commonly used threshold of a 5 mm Hg or greater decline in mean arterial pressure between a high-sodium and a low-sodium diet classified 46% of individuals as salt-sensitive. At the end of the first dietary intervention week, the mean systolic BP difference between individuals allocated to a high-sodium versus a low-sodium diet was 8 mm Hg, 95% C, 4 to 11 mm Hg, P less than 0.001, which was mostly similar across subgroups of age, sex, race, hypertension, baseline BP, diabetes, and body mass index. Adverse events were mild, reported by 9.9% and 8.0% of individuals while consuming the high and low sodium diets, respectively. Conclusions and relevance Dietary sodium reduction significantly lowered BP in the majority of middle-aged to elderly adults. The decline in BP from a high to low sodium diet was independent of hypertension status and antihypertensive medication use, was generally consistent across subgroups, and did not result in excess adverse events. Intravenous vitamin C for patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Two harmonized randomized clinical trials. Objective to determine whether vitamin C improves outcomes for patients with COVID-19. Design, setting, and participants two prospectively harmonized randomized clinical trials enrolled critically ill patients receiving organ support in intensive care units, 90 sites, and patients who were not critically ill, 40 sites, between July 23, 2020 and July 15, 2022, on four continents. Interventions patients were randomized to receive vitamin C administered intravenously or control, placebo or no vitamin C, every 6 hours for 96 hours, maximum of 16 doses. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was a composite of organ support-free days defined as days alive and free of respiratory and cardiovascular organ support in the intensive care unit up to day 21 and survival to hospital discharge. Results enrollment was terminated after statistical triggers for harm and futility were met. The trials had primary outcome data for 1,568 critically ill patients, 1,037 in the vitamin C group, and 531 in the control group, median age, 60 years, IQR, 50 to 70 years, 35.9% were female, and 1,022 patients who were not critically ill, 456 in the vitamin C group, and 566 in the control group, median age, 62 years, IQR, 51 to 72 years, 39.6% were female. Among critically ill patients, the median number of organ support-free days was 7, IQR, minus 1 to 17 days, for the vitamin C group versus 10, IQR, minus 1 to 17 days, for the control group, adjusted proportional or, 0.88, 95% credible interval, 
pre, 0.73 to 1.06, and the posterior probabilities were 8.6%, efficacy, 91.4%, harm, and 99.9%, futility. Among patients who were not critically ill, the median number of organ support-free days was 22, IQR, 18 to 22 days, for the vitamin C group versus 22, IQR, 21 to 22 days, for the control group, adjusted proportional or, 0.80, 95% CRE, 0.60 to 1.01, and the posterior probabilities were 2.9%, efficacy, 97.1%, harm, and greater than 99.9%, futility. Among critically ill patients, survival to hospital discharge was 61.9%, 642,037, for the vitamin C group versus 64.6%, 343,531, for the control group, adjusted or, 0.92, 95% CRE, 0.73 to 1.17, and the posterior probability was 24.0% for efficacy. Among patients who were not critically ill, survival to hospital discharge was 85.1%, 388,456, for the vitamin C group versus 86.6%, 495,166, for the control group, adjusted or, 0.86, 95% CRE, 0.61 to 1.17, and the posterior probability was 17.8% for efficacy. Conclusions and relevance in hospitalized patients with COVID-19, vitamin C had low probability of improving the primary composite outcome of organ support-free days and hospital survival. Multi-target stool RNA tests for colorectal cancer screening. Objective to evaluate the sensitivity and specificity of a non-invasive, multi-target stool RNA, Mount Cerna, test, ColoSense, test compared with results from a colonoscopy. Design, setting, and participants this phase 3 clinical trial, CRC-PREVENT, was a blinded, prospective, cross-sectional study to support a pre-market approval application for a class 3 medical device. A total of 8,920 participants were identified online using social media platforms and enrolled from June 2021 to June 2022 using a decentralized nurse call center. All participants completed the Mount Cerna test, which incorporated a commercially available fecal immunochemical test, FIT, concentration of eight RNA transcripts, and participant reported smoking status. Stool samples were collected prior to participants completing a colonoscopy at their local endoscopy center. The Mount Cerna test results, positive or negative, were compared with index lesions observed on colonoscopy. Over the course of 12 months, individuals 45 years and older were enrolled in the clinical trial using the decentralized recruitment strategy. Participants were enrolled from 49 U.S. states and obtained colonoscopies at more than 3,800 different endoscopy centers. Main outcomes and measures the primary outcomes included the sensitivity of the Mount Cerna test for detecting colorectal cancer and advanced adenomas and the specificity for no lesions on colonoscopy. Results The mean range, age of participants was 55, 45 to 90, years, with 4% self-identified as Asian, 11% as Black and 7% as Hispanic. Of the 8,920 eligible participants, 36, 0.40%, 
had colorectal cancer and 606, 6.8%, had advanced adenomas. The Mount Cerna test sensitivity for detecting colorectal cancer was 94%, sensitivity for detecting advanced adenomas was 46%, and specificity for no lesions on colonoscopy was 88%. The Mount Cerna test showed significant improvement in sensitivity for colorectal cancer, 94% versus 78%. McNamara P equals 0.01 and advanced adenomas, 46% versus 29%, McNamara P less than 0.001, compared with results of the FIT. Conclusions and relevance in individuals 45 years and older, the Mount Cerna test showed high sensitivity for colorectal neoplasia, colorectal cancer and advanced adenoma, with significant improvement in sensitivity relative to the FIT. Specificity for no lesions on colonoscopy was comparable to existing molecular diagnostic tests. Next article from Hypertension Journal. Different home blood pressure thresholds to predict perfect 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure control and treated hypertension based on an all-in-one device. Background. Home blood pressure, BP, is an important component of digital strategies for hypertension management. However, no studies have used the same device to investigate 24-hour BP control status in relation to different home BP control thresholds. Methods Participants in the general practitioner-based, multi-center high-jamp study, Home Activity Information and Communication Technology-based Japan Ambulatory Blood Pressure Monitoring Perspective, underwent office BP measurement then 24-hour ambulatory BP monitoring, then home BP monitoring for 5 days. A validated all-in-one BP monitoring device was used to measure office, home, and ambulatory BP. Baseline data were used to investigate ambulatory BP control status in individuals with well-controlled home BP based on the different guideline thresholds, 125-75ths of a millimeter HG, 130-80ths of a millimeter HG, and 135/85 of a millimeter Hg. Results. Data from 2,269 patients were analyzed. For individuals with well-controlled home BP less than 135/85 of a millimeter Hg, 59.5% of the total population, the prevalence of uncontrolled 24-hour, greater than or equal to 130/80 millimeters Hg. Daytime, greater than or equal to 135-85 mm Hg, and nighttime ambulatory BP, greater than or equal to 120-70 mm Hg, was 19.9%, 18.5%, and 33.6%, respectively. Corresponding prevalence rates in the 42.7% of participants with well-controlled home BP less than 130/80 of a millimeter Hg were 13.4%, 12.9%, and 26.0%, and when well-controlled home BP was strictly defined as less than 125/75 of a millimeter Hg, 23.9% of the population, prevalence of rates of uncontrolled 24-hour daytime and nighttime ambulatory BP were 7.0%, 9.0%, and 15.3%, respectively. Conclusions Home VP control status defined using different thresholds could predict 24-hour ambulatory BP control status and treated hypertension. 
One third of individuals still had uncontrolled nocturnal hypertension when home BP was controlled to less than 135 85ths of a millimeter Hg, but ambulatory BP was quite well controlled when home BP was less than 125 75ths of a millimeter Hg. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Atezolizumab with or without radiotherapy for advanced squamous cell carcinoma of the penis, the Pericles study, a phase 2 trial. Purpose. Patients with advanced penile squamous cell carcinoma have a poor prognosis, 21% 2-year overall survival, OS, from diagnosis. We assess the activity of atezolizumab, anti-PDL1, in patients with advanced penile cancer, with or without radiotherapy, RT. Patients and Methods. A single-center, non-randomized phase 2 study with two treatment arms was conducted in 32 patients with histologically confirmed advanced penile cancer. All patients received atezolizumab, 1,200 mg, once every three weeks. 20 patients, who were expected to benefit from RT for local regional disease control, received additional irradiation. The primary endpoint was one-year progression-free survival, PFS, for the complete cohort and was reached if the actual one-year PFS was at least 35%. Secondary endpoints included OS, objective response rate, ORR, and tolerability. Exploratory biomarker analyzes were conducted in pretreatment specimens. Results. Median follow-up was 29.1 months, IQR, 18.1 to 33.5. Grade 3 to 4 adverse events related to atezolizumab or RT were observed in 330 seconds, 9.4%, and 1320, 65%, patients, respectively. One year PFS was 12.5%, 95% C, 5.0 to 31.3, which did not meet the study's primary endpoint. Median OS was 11.3 months, 95% C, 5.5 to 18.7. In the objective response evaluable population, N equals 30, 93.8%, the ORR was 16.7%, 95% C, 6-35, including 2, 6.7%, complete responders and 3, 10%, partial responders. Improved PFS was observed in patients with high-risk human papillomavirus, HRHPV positive tumors, P equals 0.003 and those with high infiltration of intratumoral CD3 plus C.D. 8 plus T cells, P equals 0.037. Conclusion Although the primary endpoint of one-year PFS was not met, durable antitumor activity to atezolizumab was observed in a subset of patients. Biomarkers, such as HRHPV and intratumoral CD3 plus C.D. 8 plus T cell infiltration, may help to better select responders. Next article from Hepatology. Microscopic colitis and risk of incident rheumatoid arthritis. Background. Microscopic colitis, MC, has been linked to several autoimmune conditions. Results from previous studies on the association with rheumatoid arthritis, RA, have been inconsistent. Aim. To assess the risk of future RA in MC. Methods. 
We conducted a nationwide matched cohort study in Sweden of 8,179 patients with biopsy-verified MC, diagnosed in 2007-2017, 36,400 matched reference individuals and 8,202 siblings without MC, with follow-up until 2021. Information on MC was obtained from all of Sweden's regional pathology registers, and equals 28, through the Espresso cohort. Data on incident RA were collected from the National Patient Register. Using Cox regression, we calculated adjusted hazard ratios, Rs, and 95% confidence intervals, Cs. Results During a median follow-up of 9.1 years, interquartile range equals 6.7 to 11.7. 73 MC patients and 183 reference individuals from the general population were diagnosed with RA, 99 versus 55 events per 100,000 person years, equivalent to one extra case of RA in 226 patients with MC followed for 10 years. These rates corresponded to an R of 1.83, 95% C equals 1.39 to 2.41. The R was highest during the first year of follow-up, 2.31, 95% C equals 1.08 to 4.97, and remain significantly elevated up to 5 years after MC diagnosis, are 2.16, 95% C equals 1.42 to 3.30. Compared to siblings, without MC, the R was 2.04, 95% C equals 1.18 to 3.56. Conclusion Patients with MC are at a nearly two-fold risk of developing RA compared to the general population. Knowledge of this increased risk may expedite evaluation for RA in patients with MC presenting with joint symptoms and or arthralgia, thus preventing delay until RA diagnosis. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology The Impact of Intermittent Fasting on Patients with Suspected Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease Goal The aim was to investigate the short-term impact of time-restricted feeding on patients with suspected gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD. Background Lifestyle modifications are often suggested, but the role of diet in GERD is unclear. Intermittent fasting is popular in the media and has demonstrated potential benefits with weight loss and inflammatory conditions as well as alterations in gastrointestinal hormones. Study Patients who were referred for 96-hour ambulatory wireless pH monitoring off-proton pump inhibitor to investigate GERD symptoms were screened for eligibility. Patients were instructed to maintain their baseline diet for the first two days of pH monitoring and switch to an intermittent fasting regimen. 16 consecutive hour fast and 8 hours eating window for the second two days. Objective measures of reflux and GERD symptom severity were collected and analyzed. Results A total of 25 participants were analyzed. 925, 36%, fully adhered to the intermittent fasting regimen, with 2125, 84%, demonstrating at least partial compliance. Mean acid exposure time on fasting days was 3.5% versus 4.3% on non-fasting days. Intermittent fasting was associated with a 0.64 reduction in acid exposure time, 95% C, minus 2.32, 1.05. There was a reduction in GERT symptom scores of heartburn and regurgitation during periods of intermittent fasting, 14.3 versus 9.9, 9.9. 
difference of minus 4.46, 95% C, minus 7.6, minus 1.32. Conclusions Initial adherence to time-restricted eating may be difficult for patients. There is weak statistical evidence to suggest that intermittent fasting mildly reduces acid exposure. Our data show that short-term intermittent fasting improves symptoms of both regurgitation and heartburn. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Plural empyema caused by Streptococcus intermedius and Fusobacterium nucleatum. Background Many community-acquired plural infections are caused by facultative and anaerobic bacteria from the human oral microbiota. The epidemiology, clinical characteristics, pathogenesis, and etiology of such infections are little studied. The aim of the present prospective multicenter cohort study was to provide a thorough microbiological and clinical characterization of such oral type plural infections and to improve our understanding of the underlying etiology and associated risk factors. Methods Over a two year period, we included 77 patients with community acquired pleural infection, whereof 63, 82%, represented oral type pleural infections. Clinical and anamnestic data were systematically collected, and patients were offered a dental assessment by an oral surgeon. Microbial characterizations were done using next-generation sequencing. Obtained bacterial profiles were compared with microbiology data from previous investigations on odontogenic infections, bacteremia after extraction of infected teeth, and community-acquired brain abscesses. Results From the oral-type plural infections, We made 267 bacterial identifications representing 89 different species. Streptococcus intermedius and Orfusobacterium nucleatum were identified as a dominant component in all infections. We found a high prevalence of dental infections among patients with oral type pleural infection and demonstrate substantial similarities between the microbiology of such pleural infections and that of odontogenic infections, odontogenic bacteremia, and community-acquired brain abscesses. Conclusions Oral-type pleural infection is the most common type of community-acquired pleural infection. Current evidence supports hematogenous seeding of bacteria from a dental focus as the most important underlying etiology. Streptococcus intermedius and Fusobacterium nucleatum most likely represent key pathogens necessary for establishing the infection. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. Hepatitis B E antigen negative single hepatocyte analysis shows transcriptional silencing and slow decay of infected cells with treatment. Background. Nucleostiide analogs, nukes, rarely cure chronic hepatitis B, CHB, because they do not eliminate covalently closed circular deoxyribonucleic acid, the stable replication template. In hepatitis B E antigen, PAVAG, Positive CHB during nukes, HBV-infected cells decline slowly and are transcriptionally silenced. Whether these occur in a bag negative CHB is unknown. Methods Using paired liver biopsies separated by 2.7 to 3.7 years in four males with HIV and have ag negative CHB at both biopsies and one male with HIV who underwent of ag seroconversion between biopsies, we quantified amounts of viral nucleic acids in hundreds of individual hepatocytes. Results. 
In the four persistently Ag-negative participants, HPV-infected hepatocytes ranged from 6.2% to 17.7%, biopsy 1, and significantly declined in 3 of 4, by biopsy 2. In the FAG seroconverter, the proportion was 97.4%, biopsy 1, and declined at 81.9% at biopsy 2, p less than 0.05. We extrapolated that HPV eradication with nukes would take greater than 100 years. At biopsy 1 in the persistently ag-negative participants, 23% to 56.8% of infected hepatocytes were transcriptionally inactive, higher than we observed in ag-positive CHB, and significantly declined in 1 of 4 at biopsy 2. Conclusions In ag-negative CHB on nukes, the negligible decline in infected hepatocytes is similar to ag-positive CHB, supporting the need for more potent therapeutics to achieve functional cure. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Barriers and enablers in the use of parenteral methotrexate in rheumatoid arthritis patients, a scoping review. Objective. Methotrexate, MTX, is effective in controlling disease activity in rheumatoid arthritis, RA. Parenteral MTX may have benefits over oral MTX, but it is rarely used in practice. To better understand this low usage rate, it is necessary to explore the barriers and enablers of therapy from the perspective of RA patients. The objectives of this scoping review were to describe RA patients' perspectives on the barriers and enablers in the use of parenteral MTX and to identify the research gaps in this field. Methods The search was performed in Medline, Embase, Scopus, and Cochrane Library from inception to May 2021. Data synthesis was conducted using the theoretical framework of acceptability. This scoping review included any type of study that explored the use of parenteral MTX by adult RA patients from the patient's perspective, written in English. Results 15 studies were included, findings related to the construct's effective attitude, burden, intervention coherence, and self-efficacy were explored the most, while some were rarely, opportunity cost and perceived effectiveness, or not, ethicality, reported. RA patients were generally satisfied with MTX injections, effective attitude. From the burden construct, the requirement for dexterity for administering MTX by injection was considered a barrier, whereas the lack of significant pain from MTX injection was considered an enabler. Conclusion The findings suggested that patients generally preferred parenteral MTX formulations with attributes that facilitate self-administration. However, much of the identified research focused on pre-filled pen devices, and significant gaps were identified, such as a lack of qualitative research. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Association of Interosseous Tendon Inflammation in the Hand with Different Early Arthritides in a 10-Year Magnetic Resonance Imaging Study Objective. Inflammation around the tendons of the hand interosseous muscles, interosseous tendon inflammation, ITI, was recently identified on magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, in a set of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, RA, and arthralgia. We conducted a large MRI study to assess the prevalence of ITI diagnosis of RA and of other arthritides, as well as its relationship with clinical signs. Methods. 
A total of 1,205 patients presenting with various types of early arthritis between 2010 and 2020 underwent contrast-enhanced hand MRI as part of the prospective Leiden early arthritis cohort. MRI was evaluated with blinding for clinical data, for ITI lateral of metacarpophalangeal, MCP, joints 2-5, and for synovitis-slash-tenosynovitis-slash-osteitis. We assess the ITI presence at baseline per diagnosis and its relationship with clinical characteristics, e. presence of hand arthritis, increased acute phase reactants, and local joint swelling and tenderness. Logistic regression and generalized estimating equations were used with adjustment for age and established local inflammation features, synovitis-slash-tenosynovitis-slash-osteitis. Results A total of 36% of patients with early RA, and equals 532, had ITI, this was similar in patients with anticitrullinated protein antibody, ACPA negative RA, 37%, and those with ASPA positive RA, 34%, P equals 0.53. ITI occurred regularly in remitting seronegative symmetrical synovitis with pitting edema, 60%, and connective tissue diseases, 44%, and less frequently in undifferentiated arthritis, 14%, psoriatic arthritis, 14%, inflammatory osteoarthritis, 8%, reactive arthritis, 7%, crystal arthritis, 7%, and peripheral spondyle arthritis, 4%. ITI occurred more often in diagnoses with frequent arthritis of the hands, P less than 0.001 and increased acute phase reactants, P less than 0.001. Within RA, ITI occurred together with local MCP joint synovitis, odds ratio, or 2.4, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 1.7 to 3.4, tenosynovitis, or 2.4, 95% C, 1.8 to 3.3, and osteitis, or 2.2, 95% C, 1.6 to 3.1 on the MRI. Moreover, ITI presence was associated with local MCP joint tenderness, or 1.6, 95% C1.2 to 2.1 and swelling, or 1.8, 95% C1.3 to 2.6, independent of age and MRI detected synovitis slash tenosynovitis slash osteitis. Conclusion ITI occurs regularly in RA and other arthritides with preferential involvement of hand joints and increased acute phase reactants. At the MCP joint level, ITI associates independently with joint tenderness and swelling. Hence, ITI is a newly identified inflamed tissue mainly found in arthritides with particularly extensive and symptomatic inflammation. Association between plasma rituximab concentration and the risk of major relapse in antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody-associated vasculitides during rituximab maintenance therapy. Objective Interindividual variability in response to rituximab remains unexplored in antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody, ANCA-associated vasculitides. Rituximab pharmacokinetics, PARC, and pharmacodynamics, PD, as well as genetic polymorphisms could contribute to variability. This ancillary study of the main REITs in two trial aimed to explore the relationship between rituximab plasma concentration, genetic polymorphisms in PARC-PD candidate genes, and clinical outcomes. Methods Patients included in the main REITs in two trial, clinicaltrials.gov identifier, 
NCT 01731561, were randomized to receive a 500 mg fixed schedule rituximab infusion or an individually tailored regimen. Rituximab plasma concentrations at month 3, CM3, were assessed. DNA samples, N equals 53, were genotyped for single nucleotide polymorphisms within 88 putative PARC PD candidate genes. The relationship between PARC PD outcomes and genetic variants was investigated using logistic linear regression in additive and recessive genetic models. Results 135 patients were included. The frequency of underexposed patients, less than 4G-ML and the fixed schedule group was statistically lower compared to that in the tailored infusion group, 2.0% versus 18.0%, P equals 0.02, respectively. Low rituximab plasma concentration at 3 months, CM3 less than 4G-ML, was an independent risk factor for major relapse, odds ratio 6.56, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 1.26 to 34.09, P equals 0.025, at month 28, M28. A sensitivity survival analysis also identified CM3 less than 4G ML as an independent risk factor for major relapse, hazard ratio, HR, 4.81, 95% C 1.56 to 14.82, P equals 0.006, and relapse, HR 2.70, 95% C 1.02 to 7.15, P equals 0.046. STAT 4 RS2278940 and PRICA RS8076312 were significantly associated with CM3 but not with major relapse onset at M28. Conclusion These results suggest that drug monitoring could be useful to individualize the schedule of rituximab administration within the maintenance phase. Next article from Circulation October 24, 2023. Inhaled ipoprostenol compared with nitric oxide for right ventricular support after major cardiac surgery. Background. Right ventricular failure, RVF, is a leading driver of morbidity and death after major cardiac surgery for advanced heart failure, including orthotopic heart transplantation and left ventricular assist device implantation. Inhaled pulmonary selective vasodilators, such as inhaled epoprostenol, EPO and nitric oxide, ENO, are essential therapeutics for the prevention and medical management of postoperative RVF. However, there is limited evidence from clinical trials to guide agent selection despite the significant cost considerations of enotherapy. Methods In this double-blind trial, participants were stratified by assigned surgery key preoperative prognostic features, then randomized to continuously receive either EPO or ENO beginning at the time of separation from cardiopulmonary bypass with the continuation of treatment into the intensive care unit stay. The primary outcome was the composite RVF rate after both operations, defined after transplantation by the initiation of mechanical circulatory support for isolated RVF, and defined after left ventricular assist device implantation by moderate or severe right heart failure according to criteria from the Interagency Registry for Mechanically Assisted Circulatory Support. An equivalence margin of 15 percentage points was pre-specified for between group RVF risk difference. Secondary postoperative outcomes were assessed for treatment differences and included, 
mechanical ventilation duration, hospital and intensive care unit length of stay during the index hospitalization, acute kidney injury development including renal replacement therapy initiation, and death at 30 days, 90 days, and one year after surgery. Results Of 231 randomized participants who met eligibility at the time of surgery, 120 received EPO, and 111 received ENO. Primary outcome occurred in 30 participants, 25.0%, in the EPO group and 25 participants, 22.5%, in the ENO group, for a risk difference of 2.5 percentage points, two one-sided test 90% C, minus 6.6% to 11.6%, in support of equivalence. There were no significant between group differences for any of the measured postoperative secondary outcomes. Conclusions Among patients undergoing major cardiac surgery for advanced heart failure, inhaled pulmonary selective vasodilator treatment using EPO was associated with similar risks for RVF development and development of other postoperative secondary outcomes compared with treatment using ENO. Next article from American College of Cardiology. SGLT2 inhibitors for cancer therapy-related cardiac dysfunction. Study questions. Among patients with cancer therapy-related cardiac dysfunction or heart failure, CTRCD-HF, on background HF therapies and type 2 diabetes mellitus, T2DM, what is the association between sodium glucose cotransporter 2, SGLT2, inhibitor use and clinical outcomes? Methods. This retrospective cohort study used data from the TriNiche Research Network, Electronic Health Record, EHR, data from 72 healthcare organizations with approximately 90 million patients, from January 2013 to April 2020. Included in the study were adult patients with a history of T2DM, prior cancer with exposure to potentially cardiotoxic cancer therapies, and a diagnosis of cardiomyopathy or HF following cancer therapy. Patients with a diagnosis of ischemic heart disease following cancer therapy were excluded. Among patients receiving background HF therapies, angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor slash angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor slash angiotensin receptor blocker, beta blocker, and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, patients prescribed an SGLT2 inhibitor were compared to those not on an SGLT2 inhibitor. The primary outcomes were HF exacerbations and all-cause mortality at two years. The secondary outcomes were all-cause hospitalizations or emergency room, ER, visits, atrial fibrillation and flutter, acute kidney injury, and need for renal replacement therapy. Results A total of 6,988 patients with CTRCD-HF were identified. Of these, 654 patients were prescribed an SGLT2 inhibitor and 6,334 were not. After propensity score matching, 1,280 patients were included for analysis, 640 patients in each group. Baseline characteristics of the groups in the analysis cohort were similar. For the primary outcomes, the patients with SGLT2 inhibitor therapy compared to those without were less likely to have an HF exacerbation, 85 versus 154 patients, odds ratio or 0.483, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.361 to 0.647, P equals 0.001, 
and had lower all-cause mortality, 73 versus 194 deaths, or 0.296, 95% C, 0.220 to 0.398, P less than 0.001. For the secondary outcomes, SGLT2 inhibitor use compared to no use was also associated with less frequent all-cause hospitalizations or ER visits, atrial fibrillation and flutter, acute kidney injury, and renal replacement therapy. For safety outcomes, SGLT2 inhibitor use compared to no use was associated with less frequent urinary tract infections and similar frequency of lower extremity amputations. Conclusions Among patients with CTRCD-HF on background HF therapies and T2DM, SGLT2 inhibitor use compared to no use was associated with less frequent HF exacerbations and all-cause mortality. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Effects of aerobic training and semaglutide treatment on pancreatic beta cell secretory function in patients with type 2 diabetes. Context. Prior to this study, it is known that type 2 diabetes is linked to obesity and a sedentary lifestyle, leading to inadequate beta cell function and insulin resistance. Limited research has explored the metabolic effects of combining exercise training with anti-diabetic medications, particularly focusing on insulin secretion in patients with type 2 diabetes and moderately preserved beta cell function. Objective The effect of the interaction of semaglutide and physical training on pancreatic beta cell secretory function is unknown in patients with type 2 diabetes. Methods 31 patients with type 2 diabetes underwent 12 weeks of aerobic training alone or concurrent to treatment with semaglutide. Patients randomly allocated to concurrent semaglutide and training were treated with semaglutide for 20 weeks before the training and evaluated at inclusion and again before and after the training intervention. Patients randomized to training were evaluated before and after training. The primary outcome was a change in insulin secretory capacity with training, evaluated by a two-step hyperglycemic, 20 and 30 m clamp. Results. Training increased the incremental area under the curve for insulin from 21 to 27 nm times 2 hours, ratio 1.28, 95% C1.02 to 1.60, during clamp step 1 and from 40 to 64 nm times 2 hours, ratio 1.61, 95% C1.25 to 2.07, during step 2. Semaglutide treatment increased insulin secretion from 16 to 111 nm times 2 hours, ratio 7.10, 95% C3.68 to 13.71, and from 35 to 447 nm times 2 hours, ratio 12.74, 95% C5.65 to 28.71, correspondingly. Semaglutide and training increased insulin secretion from 130 to 171 nm times 2 hours, ratio 1.31, 95% C1.06 to 1.63, and from 525 to 697 nm times 2 hours, ratio 1.33, 95% C1.02 to 1.72, correspondingly. The median increase in total insulin secretion with a combination was 134 nm times 2 hours greater, 95% C108 to 232, than with training. Conclusion 
The combination of aerobic training and semaglutide treatment synergistically improved beta cell secretory function. Next article from Neurology, Eligibility for Anti-Amyloid Treatment in a Population-Based Study of Cognitive Aging. Background and Objectives Treatment Options for Alzheimer's Disease AD are limited and have focused mainly on symptomatic therapy and improving quality of life. Recently, Lacanumab, an anti-beta amyloid monoclonal antibody, MAB, received accelerated approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for treatment in the early stages of biomarker-confirmed symptomatic AD. An additional anti-beta amyloid MAB, aducanumab, was approved in 2021, and more will potentially become available in the near future. Research on the applicability and generalizability of the anti-beta amyloid MAB eligibility criteria on adults with biomarkers available in the general population has been lacking. The study's primary aim was to apply the clinical trial eligibility criteria for lecanemab treatment to participants with early AD of the population-based Mayo Clinic Study of Aging, MCSA, and assess the generalizability of anti-amyloid treatment. The secondary aim of this study was to apply the clinical trial eligibility criteria for aducanemab treatment in MCSA participants. Methods This cross-sectional study aimed to apply the clinical trial eligibility criteria for lecanemab and aducanemab treatment to participants with early AD of the population-based MCSA and assess the generalizability of anti-amyloid treatment. Results 237 MCSA participants, mean age, SD, 80.9, 6.3, years, 54.9% male, and 97.5% white, with mild cognitive impairment. MCI or mild dementia increased brain amyloid burden by pebabite PET comprised the study sample. Lacanumab trials inclusion criteria reduced the study sample to 112, 47.3% of 237, participants. The trials exclusion criteria further narrowed the number of potentially eligible participants to 19, overall 8% of 237. Modifying the eligibility criteria to include all participants with MCI instead of applying additional cognitive criteria resulted in 17.4% of participants with MCI being eligible for lecanemab treatment. 104 participants, 43.9% of 237, fulfilled the aducanemab clinical trials inclusion criteria. The aducanemab trials exclusion criteria further reduced the number of available participants narrowing those eligible to 12, 5.1% of 237. Common exclusions were related to other chronic conditions and neuroimaging findings. Discussion findings estimate the limited eligibility in typical older adults with cognitive impairment for anti-beta amyloid MAB. Next article from CHEST Background. Identifying individuals at risk of progressing to COPD may allow for initiation of treatment to potentially slow the progression of the disease or the selection of subgroups for discovery of novel interventions. Research question. Does the addition of CT imaging features, texture-based radiomic features, and established quantitative CT scanned conventional risk factors improve the performance for predicting progression to COPD in individuals who smoke with machine learning? Study Design and Methods 
Participants at risk, individuals who currently or formerly smoked, without COPD, from the Canadian cohort obstructive lung disease, can cold, population-based study underwent CT imaging at baseline and spirometry at baseline and follow-up. Various combinations of CT scan features, texture-based CT scan radiomics, N equals 95, and established quantitative CT scan, N equals 8, as well as demographic, N equals 5, and spirometry, N equals 3, measurements, with machine learning algorithms were evaluated to predict progression to COPD. Performance metrics included the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, AUC, to evaluate the models. The long test was used to compare the performance of the models. Results Among the 294 at-risk participants who were evaluated, mean age, 65.6 plus or minus 9.2 years, 42% female, mean pack years, 17.9 plus or minus 18.7, 52 participants, 23.7%, in the training data set and 17 participants, 23.0%, in the testing data set progressed to spirometric COPD at follow-up, 2.5 plus or minus 0.9 years from baseline. Compared with machine learning models with demographics alone, AUC 0.649, the addition of CT imaging features to demographics, AUC 0.730, P less than 0.05, or CT imaging features and spirometry to demographics, AUC 0.877, P less than 0.05, significantly improved the performance for predicting progression to COPD. Interpretation Heterogeneous structural changes occur in the lungs of individuals at risk that can be quantified using CT imaging features, and evaluation of these features together with conventional risk factors improves performance for predicting progression to COPD. Preserved ratio impaired spirometry and risks of macrovascular, microvascular complications and mortality among individuals with type 2 diabetes. Background The prospective associations of preserved ratio impaired spirometry, PRISM, with new onset macrovascular and microvascular complications and mortality among individuals with type 2 diabetes, T2D, and whether PRISM enhances the prediction ability of an established office based risk score remain to be elucidated. Research question. Can PRISM be used as a predictor of poor prognosis in individuals with T2D? Study design and methods. We included 20,047 study participants with T2D and complete data on spirometry at recruitment from the UK Biobank cohort. Multivariable Cox proportional hazards models were used to assess the associations of baseline PRISM, FEV1 to FVC ratio, greater than or equal to 0.70, FEV1, less than 80% predicted, with subsequent risks of incident stroke, any type, ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, unstable angina, coronary heart disease, diabetic retinopathy, diabetic kidney disease, all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, and respiratory mortality. Results. For this cohort analysis, 4,521 patients, 22.55% of participants with T2D showed comorbid PRISM at baseline. Over a median follow-up of 11.52 to 11.87 years, patients with T2D with PRISM at baseline showed higher risks than those with normal spirometry findings of various T2D complications developing and mortality, 
the adjusted hazard ratios for PRISM were 1.413, 95% C, 1.187 to 1.681 for stroke, any type, 1.382, 95% C, 1.129 to 1.690, for ischemic stroke, 1.253, 95% C, 1.045 to 1.503, for myocardial infarction, 1.206, 95% C, 1.086 to 1.339, for coronary heart disease, 1.311, 95% C, 1.141 to 1.506, for diabetic retinopathy, 1.384, 95% C, 1.190 to 1.610, for diabetic kidney disease, 1.337, 95% C, 1.213 to 1.474, for all-cause mortality. 1.597, 95% C, 1.296 to 1.967, for cardiovascular mortality, and 1.559, 95% C, 1.189 to 2.044, for respiratory mortality, respectively. The addition of PRISM significantly improved the reclassification ability, based on the net reclassification index, of an office-based risk score by 15.53%, 95% C, 10.14% to 19.63%, to 33.60%, 95% C, 20.90% to 45.79%. Interpretation Individuals with T2D with comorbid prism, accounting for a considerable proportion of the population with T2D showed significantly increased risks of adverse macrovascular and microvascular complications and mortality. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Augmentation therapy for severe alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency improves survival and is decoupled from spirometric decline, a multinational registry analysis. Objectives, to assess the real-world longitudinal effects of FORAD. Methods, pulmonary function and mortality data were utilized to perform longitudinal analyzes on registry participants with severe audit. Measurements and main results, for it confers a survival benefit in severe UDIT, P less than 0.001. We uncovered two distinct UDIT phenotypes based on an initial respiratory diagnosis, lung index and non-lung index. Lung indexes demonstrated a more rapid FEV1 decline between the ages of 20 and 50 and subsequently entered a plateau phase of minimal decline from 50 onward. Consequentially, for it had no effect on FEV1 decline, except in patients with a global initiative for chronic obstructive lung disease, GOLD, stage 2 lung index. Conclusions, this real-world study demonstrates a survival advantage from FORAT. This improved survival is largely decoupled from FEV1 decline. The observation that patients with severe UDID fall into two major phenotypes has implications for clinical trial design where FEV1 is a primary endpoint. Recruits into trials are typically older lung indexes entering the plateau phase and, therefore, unlikely to show spirometric benefits. For it attenuates spirometric decline in lung indexes in gold stage 2, a spirometric group commonly outside current for it commencement recommendations.
Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Risk of Postcolonoscopy Thromboembolic Events, a Real-World Cohort Study. Background and Aims. Although antithrombotic agents could increase the risk of post-polypectomy bleeding, interruption of these agents also increases the risk of thromboembolism, TAY. We assessed the risks of post-colonoscopy TAY events and their association with the interruption of antithrombotic agents. Methods This was a retrospective cohort study including consecutive patients undergoing colonoscopy between January 2016 and March 2021. We determined the rates of post-colonoscopy TAY events in patients taking various antithrombotic agents, with or without interruption, and in different patient groups according to indications for colonoscopy, underlying TAY, and bleeding risks. Results Of the 6,220 patients, 1755, 28.2%, were on antithrombotics. Overall, 20 patients, 0.32%, developed TAY events, and 25, 0.80% of 3,134 patients with polypectomy experienced major episodes of bleeding. Among all patients on antithrombotic agents, the highest rates of TAY events were observed in patients on dual antiplatelet therapy, 4.65%, adjusted odds ratio, AOR, 28.0, 95% C, 3.77 to 142.1, and clopidogrel, 2.78%, AOR, 12.2, 95% 12.2, 95% C, 2.10 to 57.0, compared with 0.11% among those not on antithrombotics. In patients interrupting antithrombotic agents, the risk of TAY was increased compared to those on no agent as follows, stopping two or more antithrombotic agents, 4.55%, AOR, 22.5, 95% C, 1.09 to 158.0, monotherapy with clopidogrel, 3.06%, AOR 15.5, 95% C, 2.86 to 69.6, warfarin, 1.33%, AOR, 6.96, 95% C, 1.14 to 33.5, or direct-acting oral anticoagulants, 0.87%, AOR, 6.23, 95% C, 1.22 to 26.8. Having an underlying high TAY risk, AOR, 16.8, 95% C, 6.33 to 46.6, was associated with higher post-colonoscopy TAY events. Conclusions The risk of post-colonoscopy thromboembolic events is low. However, the temporary interruption of antithrombotic agents, particularly stopping two or more agents, Clopidogrel, warfarin, or direct-acting oral anticoagulants was associated with higher post-colonoscopy TAY events, particularly in high-risk patients. The role of carbamyl phosphate synthetase 1 is a prognostic biomarker in patients with acetaminophen-induced acute liver failure. Background and Aims Carbamyl phosphate synthetase 1, CPS1, is a highly abundant mitochondrial urea cycle enzyme that is expressed primarily in hepatocytes. CPS1 is constitutively and physiologically secreted into bile but is released into the bloodstream upon acute liver injury, ALI. Given its abundance and known short half-life, we tested the hypothesis that it may serve as a prognostic serum biomarker in the setting of acute liver failure, ALF. Methods 
CPS1 levels were determined using enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay and immunoblotting of SARA collected by the ALF study group, ALSC, from patients with ALI and ALF, 103 patients with acetaminophen and 167 non-acetaminophen ALF etiologies. A total of 764 serum samples were examined. The inclusion of CPS1 was compared with the original ALSC prognostic index by area under the receiver operating characteristic curve analysis. Results CPS1 values for acetaminophen-related patients were significantly higher than for non-acetaminophen patients, p less than 0.0001. Acetaminophen-related patients who received a liver transplant or died within 21 days of hospitalization exhibited higher CPS1 levels than patients who spontaneously survived, p equals 0.01. Logistic regression and area under the receiver operating characteristic analysis of CPS1 enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay values improved the accuracy of the ALFSC prognostic index, which performed better than the model for end-stage liver disease, in predicting 21-day transplant-free survival for acetaminophen but not non-acetaminophen-related ALF. An increase of CPS1 but not alanine transaminase or aspartate transaminase, when comparing day 3 with day 1 levels was found in a higher percentage of acetaminophen transplanted slash dead patients, p less than 0.05. Conclusion Serum CPS1 determination provides a new potential prognostic biomarker to assess patients with acetaminophen-induced ALF. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Differences in the circulating proteome in individuals with versus without sickle cell trait. Background. Sickle cell trait affects approximately 8% of black individuals in the United States, along with many other individuals with ancestry from malaria endemic regions worldwide. While traditionally considered a benign condition, Recent evidence suggests that sickle cell trait is associated with lower EFR and higher risk of kidney diseases, including kidney failure. The mechanisms underlying these associations remain poorly understood. We used proteomic profiling to gain insight into the pathobiology of sickle cell trait. Methods We measured proteomics, N equals 1285 proteins assayed by a link explorer, using baseline plasma samples from 592 black participants with sickle cell trait and 1 to 1 age matched black participants without sickle cell trait from the Prospective Women's Health Initiative cohort. Age-adjusted linear regression was used to assess the association between protein levels and sickle cell trait. Results In age-adjusted models, 35 proteins were significantly associated with sickle cell trait after correction for multiple testing. Several of the sickle cell trait protein associations were replicated in black participants from two independent cohorts, atherosclerosis risk in communities study and Jackson Heart study, assayed using an orthogonal aptamer-based proteomic platform, SOMASCAN. Many of the validated sickle cell trait-associated proteins are known biomarkers of kidney function or injury, for example, hepatitis A virus cellular receptor 1, Hafer 1 slash kidney injury molecule 1, Kim 1, uromodulin, Ahmad, Ephrins, related to red cell physiology or hemolysis, erythropoietin, EPO, hemoxygenase 1, HMOX 1, and alpha hemoglobin stabilizing protein, and or inflammation, fracokin, CC motif chemokin ligand 2 slash monocyte chemoattractant protein 1, MCP1, and urokinase plasminogen activator surface receptor, PLOR. 
A protein risk score constructed from the top sickle cell trait-associated biomarkers was associated with incident kidney failure among those with sickle cell trait during Women's Health Initiative follow-up, odds ratio, 1.32, 95% confidence interval, 1.10 to 1.58. Conclusions We identified and replicated the association of sickle cell trait with a number of plasma proteins related to hemolysis, kidney injury, and inflammation. Prostaglandin E2, osmoregulation, and disease progression in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Background Prostaglandin E2, PGE2, plays a physiological role in osmoregulation, a process that is affected early in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, ADPT. PGE2 has also been implicated in the pathogenesis of ADPT in preclinical models, but human data are limited. Here, we hypothesize that urinary PGE2 excretion is associated with impaired osmoregulation, disease severity, and disease progression in human act. Methods Urinary excretions of PGE2 and its metabolite, PGEM, were measured in a prospective cohort of patients with ADPT. The associations between urinary PGE2 and PGEM excretions, markers of osmoregulation, EGFR and height-adjusted total kidney volume were assessed using linear regression models. Cox regression and linear mixed models were used for the longitudinal analysis of the associations between urinary PGE2 and PGEM excretions and disease progression defined as 40% EGFR loss or kidney failure, and change in EGFR over time. In two intervention studies, we quantified the effect of starting tilvaptin and adding hydrochlorothiazide to tilvaptin on urinary PGE2 and PGEM excretions. Results In 562 patients with ADPT, 61% female, eat for 63 plus or minus 28 ml per minute per 1.73 square meters, higher urinary PGE2 or PGEM excretions were independently associated with higher plasmacopeptin, lower urine osmolality lower EGFR, and greater total kidney volume. Participants with higher baseline urinary PGE2 and PGEM excretions had a higher risk of 40% EGFR loss or kidney failure, hazard ratio, 1.28, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.13 to 1.46, and hazard ratio, 1.50, 95% C, 1.26 to 1.80 per twofold higher urinary PGE2 or PGEM excretions, and a faster change in EGFR over time, minus 0.39, 95% C, minus 0.59 to minus 0.20, and minus 0.53, 95% C, minus 0.75 to minus 0.31, ml per minute per 1.73 square meters per year. In the intervention studies, urinary PGEM excretion was higher after starting tilvaptin while urinary PGE2 excretion was higher after adding hydrochlorothiazide to tilvaptin. Conclusions Higher urinary PGE2 and PGEM excretions in patients with ADPT are associated with impaired osmoregulation, disease severity, and progression. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Randomized study of tenopaner added to phosphate binders for patients with refractory hyperphosphatemia. Introduction 
Serum phosphorus management is important for patients with chronic kidney disease on dialysis to reduce the risk of hyperparathyroidism and ectopic vascular calcification. Phosphate binders, PBs, control serum phosphorus levels. However, some patients do not achieve adequate control with existing PBs. The similar mechanisms of action of each PB may limit their ability to lower serum phosphorus levels. Therefore, drugs with novel mechanisms of action that can be added to existing PBs to further lower serum phosphorus levels are desired. Tenopaner, a novel selective inhibitor of intestinal sodium-slash-hydrogen exchanger 3 transporters, decreases passive phosphate absorption in the intestine, thereby decreasing serum phosphorus levels. Methods this study evaluated the efficacy and safety of tenopaner treatment with uptitration when added to PBs among Japanese hemodialysis patients with hyperphosphatemia poorly controlled by PBs alone. In total, 169 patients taking PBs whose serum phosphorus level was greater than or equal to 6.1 and less than 10.0 mg DL initiated the 8-week treatment, placebo plus PB, N equals 85, tenopaner plus PB, N equals 84. Results. The least squares mean change from baseline to week 8 in serum phosphorus level was minus 0.24 and minus 2.00 mg DL in the placebo and tenopaner groups, respectively, with a statistically significant difference between groups, minus 1.76 mg DL, P less than 0.0001. Diarrhea as a treatment emergent adverse event, TEE, occurred in 14.1% and 63.1% of patients in the placebo and tenopaner groups, respectively. All diarrhea events were mild or moderate. Conclusion Tenopaner added to PBs improved serum phosphorus levels that could not previously be controlled by PBs alone, and no new safety concerns were raised. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great weekend.